This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. In this extra content interview, Stephen Lawrence sits down with Alison Batterson, the founder of Human Rights for All, a unique Australian pro bono law firm having a major impact on Australian migration and human rights law. Human Rights for All specialise in obtaining liberty for detained asylum seekers, refugees and stateless persons. They represented AJL20, a Syrian man whose legal travails have been the subject of two Wigs episodes in his proceedings before the Federal and High Court. Stephen and Alison discuss the man behind the case and the fascinating and important issues raised by his innovative and strategic, although ultimately sadly unsuccessful, piece of litigation. Listeners interested in donating to Human Rights for All should head to their website www.hr4a.com.au. That's www.hr4a.com.au. Now on with the show. Hey, Alison, welcome to the Wigs. Thank you very much, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. So look, just to set the scene for listeners, I was really keen to have you on because your work through your organisation, Human Rights for All, uh, really touches on a lot of the areas that I'm really passionate about and areas that the Whigs have discussed. And our listeners will recall in our very first episode of Series 1, we talked about the explosion in criminal deportations in Australia, which has obviously escalated quite dramatically since 2014. And then in Episode 8 of Series two, we talked about a case where you were acting in it and have been acting in it of AJL20, which is this really, really interesting and important case about uh, that touches upon this nexus between character cancellation and refugee status and what is the fate of people who are refugees but whose visas are cancelled. So really happy to, to have you on the show and thought we could kick off maybe by you just telling listeners what is this organization that you run human rights for all which is doing such important work yeah sure so um human rights for all is a charitable pro bono law firm um which is a bit of an unusual beast and, and no one really knows what to do with it um i established that Um, in response to visiting places of detention, immigration detention, and something that nobody ever um, raises as as a concern is that there were no lawyers. And I'm like, where, Mm. you know, you know, normally there's lawyers everywhere in, um, well, certainly in the world I come from, which I'm an ex-corporate lawyer, private equity. So, you know, very different um, career trajectory. But I was meeting people in immigration detention who hadn't talked to a lawyer for three or four years, hadn't seen a lawyer for five years, and there's no right to legal representation in Australia. And all the legal aid, um, and just full disclosure, I did stalk you guys and listen to quite a few of the the episodes beforehand um, <laughs> to, to get used to your, the style. Mm. Um, and you're right, legal aid in, in Australia is in a terrible situation, and, and part of that is for people in immigration detention. Um, so human rights for all grew organically out of that that need um, and particularly out of the need for people in onshore detention as opposed to people on Manus and Nauru where a lot of the the focus was and and you know quite rightly 
but there are people in immigration detention who have been detained for longer than the offshore regime this second time round has, has been running. Um, so we specialise in complex cases of long-term detained, self-identified refugees and stateless people. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's our, our small organisation, um, small but mighty, we like to think. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Look, it's such important work because these people really are the wretched of the earth, you know. They have these sort of compounding factors of refugee status, criminality. They don't have many people on their side. So, yeah, good on you. Yeah, thank you. And it's interesting. I mean, there are a lot of people on their side. If you can advocate correctly and tell the stories correctly, and an example of that will be AJL. 20 and and why we should have some you know, you know there's the legal questions but then there's just having empathy and morality mm, yeah absolutely so obviously because of the effect of a particular provision of the migration act we can't use this man's name but who is ajl 20 so ajl 20 is a delightful gentleman um he was born in syria uh this is whatever is i'm i'm saying is on the public record so mm-hmm. Be right. Um, grew up in in Lebanon, and when his mother remarried, um, he to an Australian person. He he came to Australia at the same time. Now, like many people um, who have come from from backgrounds of, of trauma and um, poverty and, and deprivation, which is where AJL Twenty comes from. When he arrived in Australia. Um, and that there were issues within the family, um, he actually quite quickly got a, got a criminal record. And, you know, if you look back on it, you can see, you know, precisely where that behaviour came from, precisely why it occurred. Um, and so when his mother separated from the, the stepfather and applied for refugee status, uh, he decided to exclude himself from that um, application as a dependent because of his criminality, because of his, his, his criminal record. And that has led to years and years of trying to regularise his status in in Australia. The rest of his family, uh, his siblings, his mother are here, are settled. Um, And because he tried to do the right thing about it for his mum, um, because it was so stressful, and it is very stressful even in the community waiting for your status to to be regularised, he you know, got into a little bit more trouble. He, he spent a period of time in jail. Um, he was released and then eight months later uh, he was um, detained by immigration authorities um, where, you know, he, he was for, for six or seven years. Mm. Uh, but Was he cancelled under the mandatory cancellation provisions? <clears throat> he was not accepted. Oh, I see. So, he's lied. Okay. Yeah, so he so he 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 had his dependent visa connected to his mum's cancelled because of the, the character provisions, and then um, applying for protection status in his own right, which he was recognised as. He's, he's from Syria. I mean, it's hmm. <laughs> um, not not difficult, um, although it is a failed state, and you don't really have refugees from failed states um, in the technical term. So more uh, sort of complementary protection type issues. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, So he, his application for a protection visa was refused on, on character grounds. Yeah. Okay. Um, But but he is a, 
you know, his English is perfect. Um, He can turn his hand at anything. He has an incredible partner in Australia. Um, And when he was released, spoiler alert, um, he, you know, integrated into their lives seamlessly. Mm. And it was through his partner that I got to know him. Um, So they had, I mean, you always want to think that you're, one of the first lawyers that that anyone calls, but apparently they called quite a few lawyers. <laughs> see if it, you know, and we are a very small organisation um, to see if anyone would take his case, and they were just continually told it's impossible, it can't be done. He's at the end of the road. He needs to wait for the government to do something. Yeah, so many barriers. A eh? like a there's often no money, and B the vast majority of lawyers this is really complicated niche specialist stuff and yeah it is know. and and look that's why we can take these cases running a charitable pro bono law firm is not economical mm. um we the hours i mean you know we all spend hours on our cases but mm. you 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 could not pay for the amount of time that we yeah. spend going that particularly if you've been in prison and then immigration detention for a decade you know, yeah. it, it, and, and that is why you have to have properly funded legal aid. Yeah. Um, so back to AJL20. So he's got no visa. He applies for a protection visa. It's accepted that he's a refugee in the sense at least of complementary protection obligations, but he's refused on character grounds, yeah? So what happens next? Why isn't he removed? What's the So what's the he, he's doubly famous. Um, so in our space, there's a case called DMH16, which I wasn't involved with um, and was just before my, my time in this space. And that was run by Nick Wood, um, who's a, an amazing barrister in, in Melbourne. Amazing. Yeah. I had the privilege of appearing against him recently. Oh, oh, we got to half sorry. time. He was for the yeah. respondent. We thought it was in the bag. By the end of the second half, <laughs> we weren't so sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. And He's I must admit, yeah, when we were going to the high court, I was like, Nick, we don't need a silk. You do it. Absolutely. Like, well, yeah. I think we need a silk for the high court. I was like, well, have a go. Yeah. Um, he'd get a silk, but, but yeah, just as example of my confidence in him. So mm. he took on this case that basically the minister had misunderstood the legal consequences of refusing um, AGL20's protection visa on character grounds. And the minister had said um, that he would not be removed despite a particular provision of the Migration Act 197C, which says regardless of non-refoulement obligations. I mean, it's extraordinary. The the title of of this section in in a Western democratic state in the legislation, you know, non-refoulement obligations are irrelevant. Mm, I know. I mean, it, 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 it's very confronting. Um, mm. And the minister had said, no, he won't be removed to Syria where he faces harm. Um, he'll just rot in immigration detention and that's, you know, totally okay. Mm. Um, and, of course, that, that's not the law. The law is he must be removed. Um, so his case went through that and then it was, you know, sent back to be re-decided um, or decided according to the law. And... Then his partner contacted me and said, you know, would you be willing to, to take it on and, and look at his case? Um, and, and at that point, 
we had run two test cases in the High Court um, for unlawful detention. Uh, Plaintiff M47, hmm. which is about a, a stateless gentleman who doesn't know what continent he was born on, although we think it was probably in West Sahara. Um, and then we'd run another one for Plaintiff S321, uh, which was an ASIO case um, and, and looking at various ministerial intervention powers and how they, they can't work together constitutionally. Um, we had lost on, on both accounts. Mm. So this was when I was looking for another, you know, um, challenge to the detention regime. So it, it, it sort of came in nicely. And then I realised who he was, that he was um, DMH 16, and I contacted Nick again and said, Nick, I've got your old client. And, and Nick was flabbergasted. He was like, what do you mean he's still in detention? Why is Nick? And, in an, and we both know how busy Nick is and, mm. and must be. And he, he took him without question and mm. said, yes, we must do something for him. So why was he still in detention? So there'd obviously been a decision made not to remove him, right? Yes. So Australia does this thing where we pick and choose which human rights we decide are important. Or when I say we, I mean, I mean the government. I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush. So the government has a hard line on refoulement. We, we, we will not do it where we recognise someone to be a refugee, let's be clear. Um, but we're perfectly happy to lock people up indefinitely. And, mm. and I have clients in their 12th year of immigration detention who have a perfect behavioural record in detention and with no criminal record. So yes. we're kind of choosing which human rights we should abide by and then enforcing mm. that on the person. So Australia was not prepared to um, send AJL20 back to Syria and Syria is a failed state um, or, you know, struggling, so it'd be difficult anyway. And Lebanon was, because he'd lived in Lebanon for a significant period of time, and it was proving very difficult to convince Lebanese officials to um, take him back. Not a lot of effort had been made. And then particularly, you know, last year, Lebanon just fell apart. Mm. You know, the, the grain explosion, <clears throat> COVID, you know, economic downturn, you know, it's not good in Lebanon at the moment. Um, so you just was stuck. And, and there is a cohort of people who are just warehoused in immigration detention. That, that There is no other term for it mm. than we warehouse undesirables or people we don't know what to do with and we warehouse them for years and years and years and it targets particular um, nationalities and, and types of people. So Dinka, people going to Sudan or, or South mm. Sudan, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Syria, and, and it's, it is just disgraceful. So these are sort of people, I suppose, that they're sort of caught between these two competing policies, I suppose, one of which is let's cancel as many visas or refuse as many applications on character grounds as we can. Yep. On the other hand, we've got a 70-year-old established international obligation that we go to international forums and profess to honour that we don't send back people to persecution. Mm. So the outcome is this growing cohort of people that are warehoused. <clears throat> yep. Yep. And it's, it, 
And and you're right, by the time you're in that cohort, you've done your dough or your family's done their dough. Mm. Um, you're exhausted. You're probably mentally ill. Your memory's shot. It's difficult to give instructions and, and you're exhausted. You, you've got resignation syndrome or detention fatigue. Um, so it really <laughs> takes a, a huge shift in, in the thinking. Um, and with AJL20, we... It, He was a unique case, although there's more and more emerging like him, where he just said, I'd rather go back Mm -hmm. or I'd rather go anywhere than die in detention. And his partner supported that. So we had him psych tested twice to make sure that he understood that we're poking the beast and the consequence could be that they will send him back to, Mm. to Syria. And is he and his family prepared for that? So in terms of this case that you guys brought, you've got this fellow who's in this conundrum, which is the government won't release him from detention into the community, but he faces persecution at home. So what was the legal issue that you guys identified that led to an application for habeas corpus for his release? Yeah, so basically it was that his detention had no purpose. or the So from a particular date... Um, his detention ceased to have purpose. So that means his detention was neither for the purpose under the Migration Act of admittance, you know, he'd been refused a visa, it was clear that he wasn't going to be admitted, Um, and nor was it any longer for removal, for deportation, because no steps had been taken towards Syria at all and not sufficient steps had been taken towards Lebanon. So we said that, it, you know, and, and it is this concept that there's an arbitrary time when you just say, ah, this date, um, there ceased to be a purpose to his detention. Mm. Therefore, a, an order of the court for release or whatever, the, I, I say habeas as a, as a shorthand for, for all these sort of unlawful detention cases. Um, however, and, and, and there were jurisdictional issues to do with just going straight for habeas. Yeah. Um, because the federal court's created by statute. So we just, you know, an order of the court um, for release. So we said at that particular moment, we can apply for release. We can apply for habeas corpus. Um, And because what we had learnt in the previous cases where we were spectacularly unsuccessful um, was that we had to have some sort of backward-looking test. So that's why the damages compensation part came in because we discovered, particularly with plaintiff M47, we just went for habeas and as soon as we filed, the government started doing all sorts of things and then went to the court and said, oh, no, but here's the evidence that we haven't exhausted all the possibilities. And, of course, you mm-hmm. can just keep emailing governments around the world totally. and you know, it's never going to go anywhere. Um, so, so that was really the, the fundamental basis. And we were very, very careful to be very, very clear that we were not seeking to reopen El Kateb. Yeah. Because that has fallen down so many times. Yeah. So just for the listener's benefit, there's this sort of intersecting series of statutory obligations in the Migration Act, one of which is to detain an unlawful non-citizen, so a person that doesn't have a visa. And then another one is to remove them from Australia as soon as is reasonably practicable. So it was your argument, in essence, that he hasn't been removed from Australia as soon as reasonably practicable. Therefore, the detention under the first section that I just referred to loses its sort of lawful quality, in essence. Was that the argument? Yeah, and in... 
The argument, and the, the, the next step in that argument is that that purpose has not been pursued. Mm. For that purpose to be lawful and, you know, to meet as soon as reasonably practical, you have to pursue the purpose. You can't just wait there thinking something amazing is going to happen and all of a sudden Syria that you haven't contacted is going to turn around and say, sure, we'll take the person we're unaware of. Yeah. So you have to pursue the purpose. And, and that, that's where the, um, the Commonwealth was, was lacking. Yeah. And did the evidence show that Australia had not made steps to remove him and perhaps not ultimately removed him due to the fact of international non-refoulement obligations? So this is fascinating that in this case and many other cases, even after DMH-16, there's this misunderstanding or until they change the legislation that if someone is owed protection obligations, you can't refoul them, you can't return, so you do nothing. So, yeah, they were like, well, we can't refoul him, um, so we will do nothing. Mm. But he, I mean, he was... DMH 16. So <laughs> it was very strange. Um, yeah. The understanding of his his case and, you know, the court picked up on it and like, this is the man. This is this is the one mm. that told you guys you had to remove him. So so that was, you know, very unfortunate. Um, yeah. So what, so what did uh, Justice Bromberg find on this application for habeas and for damages for unlawful detention? Mm, so we had we split the questions in two. We had a because we we're really you know super focused on release, right? Like mm. when you've got someone in this position um, that's willing to go back to Syria, perhaps to to death, you're very focused on the release part. So we had a separate question: liability and then quantum of damages. Mm. So the damages question was was put to one side, and there's only <laughs> been one case in which the quantum of damages. Um, was decided, MZZHL, um, of 350000 for, yeah. for about 18 months. So um, Bromberg, Justice Bromberg decided that the uh, an order of the court um, that, this, that this person's detention was unlawful for a particular period of time um, that the remedy we had asked for, which was a release, was appropriate, and that was because the evidence had shown that um, the purpose of detention um, was not being pursued. Therefore, detention was no longer lawful, therefore released. So were you surprised when you won? <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, I, I'm a realistic optimist, I think is what I might <laughs> call myself. So it was during lockdown, um, one of the lockdowns in, in, in 2020 in September, and so I was on my laptop and I was getting increasingly worried because the case had been heard before the full federal court sitting period and I thought, oh, if we don't have judgment before the full federal court sits, we're not getting habeas. We, we might get compensation <laughs> or something else, but we're not getting, you know, there's a bit of urgency to habeas. I love um, all the speculation that lawyers engage in about the timing of decisions. Oh, I know, I know. If they're delivered in chambers or if they're not delivered in chambers or what's... Yeah. yeah which yeah, judge's associate it. sent the email? It's a great yeah. pseudoscience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was six weeks after the hearings. Mm. Um, so, and, and the, the actual handing down of the judgment, most lawyers know, you know, it takes about two minutes, mm. but just as Justice Bromberg said, you know, I find this man's attention to be unlawful and, um, 
the court orders that the applicant is released, my connection went. (laughs) (laughs) And I sort of, I was out the front of my house and the laptop started shaking. Um, And by the time I got back in, they were like, you know, and court is adjourned. I was like, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, by this point, you you give zero shits about costs, right? You're just like... Have we set legal history? Mm. Um, and so the judgment got set through and the orders were forthwith. He is to be released forthwith. So, so he got released? Hey? So he got released? Um, so I called every person in any decision-making capacity I could possibly think of. And at the, this point in time, AJL20 was in Yonga Hill, mm. which is under Christian Porter's um uh, his electorate. So I contacted him to let him know that a very important decision had been made and, you know, someone should probably action it. Mm. The superintendent of the detention centre, the, you know, who said, you know, Ali, we are, um, we are considering this and, you know, arranging his release shortly or something. And I was like, no, now he's yeah. waiting by the door. And I called my client and said, don't make a fuss. Take a couple of your bags and just stand by that door. And then, you know, they're like, oh, we can't release and we're trying to make travel arrangements. I was like, you can sit in the gutter, but you're sitting in the gutter outside. Um, so they did. They released him that day. And then there was on- an appeal. So there was a minister's appeal to the High Court. So how long mm. did that take to be heard? And um, obviously we'll get to this, but he was unsuccessful and the decision of Bromberg was quashed. And then, uh, Alison, there was an appeal to the High Court, is that correct, by the Minister to challenge Bromberg's decision? Yeah. So, interestingly, we were a single judge before the Federal Court. Uh, Christian Porter got involved as the Attorney General and applied to have it skip the full Federal Court, a bit of a bummer for us, Mm. um, and straight to the High Court. So, AGL 20 was released in September, September 11th, so hopefully a better date than we normally associate September 11th with. Mm. Um, And... The hearing in the High Court was heard in April. Um, he attended, you know, the Commonwealth's four or five barristers and then AGS and then the departmental lawyers and then going back and obviously we're all pro bono or conditional cost basis. And, um, so a bit of a David and Goliath situation. And, and the judgment was handed down on the 23rd of, of June. Um, yeah. And, yeah, the Commonwealth won the appeal. So this was a decision that divided the High Court? It was. It was a bare majority, so it was four to three. I have to say the minorities decision, and there were two minority decisions, um, Gordon and Gleeson, which Mm. is just looked at the law, and which is what we said, you know, we are on all fours with existing law, that detention must have some parameters around it to be lawful, you have to have habeas, habeas available for it to be lawful, for it to be constitutional. Um, and, and Gordon and Gleeson agreed. Edelman had a very theoretical um, approach, still very good, agreed with us, love it. Um, but the majority, the contortions they mm. went through is not of standard for a high court of Australia, and and mm. we have such a respected High Court, mm. and it, you know the first page, re, you know, refers to a decision twenty years ago when the law was different. I've got to say, I committed the thought crime um, of contempt of court 
or the thought crime version of it when I read it. <laughs> it's I, I've I never do. been I've never been so um, so disappointed. I think in the reasoning oh. of the High Court, and it obviously spares the Commonwealth this kind of legal endpoint of their policy making that they really deserve to have to deal with. Um, but this sort of gets them out of it. You know, it's this, this binary point of view that if you are a non-citizen, you either have a visa and you're in the community or you don't have a visa and, and we lock you up. Mm. Now, and it's mandatory to lock you up. We all know that's crap. It, it, it's, you know, all the blonde au pairs mm, totally. who are running around and they even had to footnote that and say, oh, except for residence determination. Mm. So it, it's not binary. Um, and AJL20 and his partner for the nine months when the decision stood, you know, they baked. Society didn't fall apart. There wasn't mm. a crime spree. You know, all the reasons to keep him segregated were proven not to be reasonable. There was no basis. And, yeah. And the reasoning, in essence, was, as I understand it, and correct me on this, was that if you haven't been removed as soon as reasonably practicable, your detention under the mandatory detention provision for unlawful non-citizens is not unlawful. It just means that you're entitled to go off to the court and seek an order in the nature of mandamus to have you removed to the place where you fear persecution. Is that is that sort of the essence of it? Yeah, yeah. And you can have detention that is purposeless, detention without purpose, mm. or detention for a misunderstood purpose. I mean, seriously. So someone could be detained because you don't like their haircut. You know, like it, it's, you've got to test it to the extremes. And the appropriate remedy is mandamus to force an officer, not the minister, but a removals officer to removal to be to have you removed. And if they don't, then the appropriate um, remedy for that is contempt of court and they could be imprisoned. Mm. So the answer to detention is more detention. It's a cruel, cruel decision, cruel, cruel outcome. Um, so shortly after this decision, the Commonwealth legislated to amend the relevant provisions in the Migration Act to basically provide shortly that... Oh, shortly before, was it? Yeah, okay. Before, to basically yeah. provide what the international non-reformant obligations are now a barrier to removal and provide a basis for indefinite detention, effectively until the person consents to removal. Is that is that sort of the upshot of it? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. basically it. But they haven't examined, and, and I think this is a, if anyone out there listening feels like taking it up, um, I'm very eager to instruct on it, is um, the definition of, of refoulement, a non-refoulement in the Migration Act, I think captures constructive refoulement, mm. which is the concept where the conditions of detention or, or wherever, wherever you are are so terrible that you voluntarily choose mm. to go back to a place of harm when, you know, it's not voluntary at all. Um so I think that is going, you know, those voluntary returnees, that's going to be difficult. The other thing that I have been thinking about, and this is not my sort of specialty, but there's these principles in that have been implied from the Constitution about, you know, detention in this migration context can only be for certain purposes, including removal. Are these amendments going to be held to be constitutional in circumstances where they allow the detention of someone on the basis 
of the owing of non-reformant obligations. Is that going to offend this kind of limb principle? That's That doesn't seem to be worked out, to my mind, by AJL20. No, no, it hasn't been worked out. It, there's a lot of questions raised. Um, some of the some of the members of the majority are going to retire in two to three years, so it, it might be possible to tease out um, some more of those. But you're right that there are many questions about you know, and any um, incidental power must be for a purpose. So. I, I, I fundamentally do not understand the majority judgment. You know, mm. it talks about heresy. Mm. Um, so we're thinking of changing the firm's logo to witches on, you know, lawyer witches <laughs> on little brooms with, with you know, robes billowing. Because I'm just like, are, are we serious? Like heresy, because we say that detention must have a purpose for it to be constitutional and not, you know, offend the separation of powers with, with punitive detention. It, it, it's... But the upshot of this detent of, of the decision is that there, there are a significant number of other cases, and I have ten um, that we have to rethink, obviously. Mm. Um, and these are for people who have been in for a decade or more. Um, we were we managed to push through a smaller number of cases, um, and and for people to be released. But this was a real, um, you know, star in the sky moment that there is some hope. And when the decision was handed down, it, it just rippled through immigration detention. Um, and, again, my phone exploded. When it was first handed down by Bromberg, my phone exploded and I thought I was going to have a mental breakdown from the number of people saying, could you just file for me? And I was like, it takes a, takes a little bit of time. Got to get a bit yeah. organised. Um, and the same when it, you know, was overturned. Mate, it was an incredible decision and it's a credit to you. It's a credit to Nick Wood. It's a credit to Justice Bromberg um, adding to a Jim body Hartley of case law. And, of his. Yeah. Jim Hartley, and, um, who was on the um, federal court one and the high court one, and, of course, Justin Gleeson, who came in, yeah. is still on, on the high court. And it was spectacular. You know, oral argument is always a bit all over the place because you've already done your written submissions. And I'm like, Whatever he's saying, I agree. <laughs> mm. Mate, I want to thank you for coming on the wigs, but I want to thank you for your work for these human beings on our shores who you said they do have advocates and they do, um, but they also are so out of favour in so many ways and they need people in their corner, mate, so good on you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at... The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.